This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Sarah Dingle, coming to you from Sydney on Gadigal Land. Welcome to This Week. Rightly or wrongly, he's copped flack from many, particularly in the media, as Australians struggle through the cost of living crisis. Now, after months of speculation, Philip Lowe's time as Reserve Bank Governor will officially come to an end. In an historic appointment, he'll be replaced by his deputy, Michelle Bullock, the first woman to lead Australia's central bank. Michelle Bullock is the person best placed to take the Reserve Bank into the future. Philip Lowe's time at the helm has been marked by controversy. Most notably, he came under fire for asserting that interest rates would probably not rise until 2024, giving false hope to hundreds of thousands of borrowers. I'm certainly sorry if people um, listened to what we'd said and then acted on that, uh, what we'd said and now regret what they had done. So has the sustained criticism of the outgoing governor been fair? I don't really think his position had become untenable. If he had stayed in the bank, he would have presided over a period of very steady rates and then falling rates, and uh, people would have probably forgotten some of the pain. Peter Martin is the economics editor with The Conversation and a visiting fellow at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. The ANZ Bank on Friday has changed its uh, call, its prediction of rates. It now thinks there'll be no further rate rises. Not, it says, because of the change of governor, but because of what's happening globally. In the US on Wednesday, inflation fell to 3% you know, down from 9% a a year earlier. There's now clear evidence that global inflation is uh, coming down and that the Reserve Bank probably can afford to do no more. Evidence we didn't have, you know, a few weeks ago. So uh, if he had stayed in the job, if Lowe had stayed in the job, he would have probably presided over a a pretty pleasant time. Uh, He he wouldn't have to have been uh, the most hated person uh, among new mortgagees for a while. Could he possibly be feeling at this point that he is he has absorbed all the the kind of the backlash, being a bit of a human punching bag, and his successor will have a much easier ride of it because of him and his decisions? I think he's very happy about his successor. Michelle Bullock has been his deputy since last year. Michelle Bullock was appointed by the coalition, by the way, uh, to be his deputy when uh, Guy DeBell, the previous deputy, left the bank. It's Almost a perfect mix of, to use the the uh, the cliche that uh, Julia Gillard used, and that uh, you know has been used in uh, the the Veep TV program. It's almost the perfect mix of change with continuity. Now, the continuity is that Michelle Bullock has been in the bank for twenty years. The change is that she actually hasn't been part of the Reserve Bank that we think of as the Reserve Bank. So the Reserve Bank does a lot of things. It deals with cash, uh, deals with currency, deals with business services. She has been head of, you know, going back uh, 25 years, she's been head of payments policy, currency group, business services, financial system. What those things are not 
is economics. What those things are not is setting rates. So whatever criticisms there've been, and you know, the Reserve Bank Review has looked at lots of them, of the way the governor and the board have set rates, she wasn't part of that process until very recently. I'm going to come back to Michelle Bullock in a second, but first, just on Philip Lowe, We've still got until September. He hasn't gone yet, but he has copped some pretty scathing commentary over the past year or so. He's been, uh, you know, on the front page of the Daily Telegraph, uh, being castigated uh, for his decisions. Has the criticism in general been fair? It is possible to make fair criticisms of Philip Lowe. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't think a lot of the criticism that he's got recently, uh, you know, take a hike, Phil, was on the uh, front page of one of the papers with a picture of him, uh, you know, wearing a rucksack. I don't think that criticism's fair. What I think you can criticise him for is excessive caution. So in, in his entire time as governor, right up until COVID, inflation never reached the Reserve Bank's target, its midpoint target of 2.5%. If that was his job, if that was his key goal, he missed it. There wasn't enough criticism, I think, of that. One estimate is that 270,000 extra Australians were unemployed than would have been if it, in fact, uh, had rates lower and, and had inflation higher. No one criticises what he did during the COVID crisis, which was uh, putting rates to zero. People do criticise um, his suggesting they'd be there longer than for it turned out to be. No one criticises him for putting up rates in, in the sense that every country in the world did that. Really, he's been doing his job. I think the, the biggest criticism that could be made of him is the one that people aren't making, uh, uh, really, and that's for too long for years and years, right up until COVID, he missed the inflation target. He allowed inflation to be too low and unemployment too high. Mm. So his successor, Deputy Governor Michelle Bullock, has been at the RBA for decades, although not in the kind of high-profile economics executive roles, as you said before. Was she the right choice out of the, you know, three or four candidates that we were all discussing? What the Treasurer needed was someone to implement the results of the Reserve Bank Review. The Reserve Bank Review essentially found that the Reserve Bank was uh, an undemocratic place where uh, decisions basically, uh, you know, were made by a small group without the, the relevant staff being properly involved, that staff were afraid to speak up. Uh, Groupthink is what it referred to uh, as the culture there. So uh, it wanted someone, we need someone who will implement that change of culture Michelle Bullock, although she's been at the Reserve Bank since 1985, she's been away from the interest rate setting, uh, the the economics part of the bank in in, in other sections, currency and so on, for about 20 years. So in a sense, she's an outsider. She must have given a commitment that she'll implement that culture. And she knows how to do it because she actually knows a way around the bank. When she joined the bank in 85, uh, she worked in economics. So uh, having worked her way up, she knows, and a lot of it outside of economics, she knows what's wrong with the processes and can look at the interest rate setting things uh, without any baggage from her having been particularly involved in them. 
Well, we are set for a new Reserve Bank governor from the 18th of September and a new-ish Reserve Bank with fewer meetings but longer ones and press conferences afterwards. Will that change make any difference to interest rates in the months ahead? I think it might. I think the bank is likely to be less keen to quickly bring them down. Uh, If more voices are heard and the bank has announced a a new method of of, uh, hearing voices and board members actually, uh, you know, being able to discuss things for a day and a half instead of a half a day and so on. I think if that's the case, there's likely to be more attention given to the uh, the people who are hurt by interest rate decisions than uh, there would have been uh, in the past when uh, the governor was under time pressure, you know, before his term ended to bring down inflation and, uh, you know, there, there, there were few people to challenge him. So I think while the new style Reserve Bank board with the new governor would have made the same decisions to push up interest rates. They might not have pushed them up as fast. They might not have uh, pushed them up as frequently. They might have had more pauses and they might have considered the effect of their decisions. Peter Martin is the economics editor with The Conversation. After five years of long-distance conversations and another dash around the world this week to speak face-to-face, the best that can be said of Australia's trade relationship with the EU is it's complicated. Not even Trade Minister Don Farrell's last-minute trip to Brussels could finally seal a free trade agreement. The agreement from the Australian point of view uh, has to achieve meaningful agricultural access to European markets, and that's what we are continuing to pursue uh, in these negotiations. There are hundreds of millions of consumers in the EU market, and Australia wants greater access to sell its beef, lamb, sugar, cheese and rice exports, to name a few. But before the Europeans make a deal, they want Australia to stop using terms like Prosecco, feta and parmesan, names they say are tied to particular regions. Neither side looks ready to budge. I think you'd have to say the deal at this stage is on life support. Jane Norman is the ABC's National Regional Affairs reporter at Parliament House. Certainly expectations of a breakthrough were kind of raised this week for two reasons. Firstly, we had the Prime Minister over at NATO where he was on the sidelines holding talks with, uh, you know, the leaders of EU member states and sort of pushing them or pressing them to uh, get some movement happening on this deal. And then we heard the Trade Minister, Don Farrell, had um, interrupted his overseas holiday to make a last-minute dash to Brussels for negotiations. So certainly uh, these sort of events made us think, well, maybe there is going to be some sort of breakthrough here. But as we know, Don Farrell has returned from Brussels empty-handed. We're no closer to an agreement. However, he has said talks will resume in August, and he's still hopeful. But I mean, I think on balance, you'd have to say that the Australian side would be more pessimistic than optimistic as things currently stand. So how important is this free trade deal for Australian producers? What What is the prize that's on the table? Well, the prize on the table is getting access to a market of 500 million consumers at a time when our biggest trading partner, China, has you know, shown itself to be unreliable. You know, its use of economic coercion has really rattled Australia. Our relationship has 
changed and it's really demonstrated why Australia needs to be locking in new or, you know, diversifying export markets. And certainly the EU is a big one. But what's interesting here is that the view from the Australian side, which is very much backed up by farmers, producers in Australia, is no deal is better than a dud deal. And there is a perception in Australia that the deal signed by New Zealand and the EU was bad for New Zealand's interests. And so that's why we saw the Agriculture Minister Murray Watt explicitly say the deal on the table as it stands is a dud deal and that the government will not sell out producers. And that phrase is one that producers have been sort of saying to the government, like, don't sell us out in this process. So yes, it's an important market, but I think that there's also a sense that Australia needs to hold firm. If they can't get enough access to Europe, what's the point? And of course, then the the issue that grabs the headlines, geographical indications, naming rights. Um, There's also, you know, a strong view that Australia needs to sort of hold the line on that and not capitulate to Europe, which is demanding Australia give up naming rights to hundreds of products. And we've we've seen feta and prosecco uh, in particular being raised as sticking points. What would actually happen if Australia stopped using terms like feta? Could we say Australian feta? Would we have to come up with a new word? And, and what value is attached to a term like feta? Well, interestingly, um, it's a Dairy Australia has estimated that the loss of names like feta, there's also parmesan, mozzarella, would cost the industry about $95 million. They'd have to rebrand, relabel and re-educate consumers. Now, of course, the most famous geographical indication is champagne, associated with the champagne region in France. Australia gave up the naming rights to that over a decade ago and the grape growers have managed to pivot and successfully market Australian sparkling. When it comes to dairy and Prosecco, which is also on the hit list for the EU, there's a sense that some of these names are so generic, it's unclear what you would call them. So sure, calling them Australian feta might be a solution if the EU is willing to, you know, agree to that compromise. But if you don't call it feta, what do you call it? You know, a a crumbly sheep and goat's milk cheese. It's just something that consumers aren't really familiar with. And so there's the kind of, you know, cold, hard economic argument. There's also an argument about identity that the government has really been pushing hard, sort of, you know, tugging at the heartstrings. Australia as a migrant nation has a whole lot of European citizens who've moved here, brought their culture, brought their food. And so in the process of covering this story, I've spoken to Prosecco growers like the Dalzottos who um, planted the original Prosecco grapes in the King Valley in Victoria decades ago. Uh, and they're now facing the prospect of kind of losing the connection to their motherland by losing the rights to this name. It does seem a little unfair that if the grape varietal itself is called Prosecco, that we should lose naming rights to it. Well, yes, and Prosecco is a really fascinating, as fascinating, I guess, as trade can get. It's a really interesting example because unlike Champagne, Prosecco wasn't a geographical region. There is a place called Prosecco in Italy, but it's not where all the grapes have been grown. And so winemakers in Australia have accused Italy of kind of shifting the goalposts, having seen the success of France's bid over Champagne. In, I think, 2009, Italy decided to unilaterally change the name of the Prosecco grape to Glera, and then declare Prosecco as a geographical indication. So that's why I think the Australian side is fighting hard against that because even people who are familiar with trade sort of say, oh, it 
it seems like Italy is kind of, you know, trying to take advantage of the situation here by effectively renaming the grape and then declaring the Prosecco area. Kevin Hogan of the National Party was uh, talking tough on this this week. He was saying that Australia should play hardball and say, look, we've got all this lithium, so give us a better deal on our dairy. And and once you get past like kind of the mental gymnastics of grouping lithium and dairy together, (laughs) is that a good bargaining chip to have? Yeah, well, interestingly, Don Farrell was also spruiking critical minerals as potentially the trump card that Australia holds. He's calling it a golden age of critical minerals and Australia is, you know, primed to really take advantage of that. Uh, There is no doubt that the European Union is looking to diversify its own supply chains of critical minerals. It's very reliant on Russia and it's very reliant on China, which right now has really a global monopoly on both the production and processing of critical minerals. Now, the reason why we're talking so much about this at the moment is that critical minerals are critical to the net zero transition. It cannot happen without things like lithium, as you described, which Australia actually has in abundance. But what we don't have is a lot of foreign investment and long-term contracts for sales. And so I think that is where there is an opportunity for Australia to say to Europe, you need these minerals. China and Russia are unreliable. So sign contracts with Australia start co-investing with us so we can actually get the processing of these minerals happening that might help get the European Union across the line. What happens if this deal never eventuates? That's a very interesting question, actually, because there is a view that you only get one shot at these deals and it is such a big market that I think, you know, there are hopes that some kind of compromise can be reached. It was interesting to hear Don Farrell consistently say, you know, we'll persist, we'll persevere, but we need goodwill. He kept saying goodwill, goodwill. So I think that he is, you know, really hoping he can land this deal. But if we can't, well, I I, I guess we kind of, you know, miss out on access to a massive market. And where does that leave Australia, I suppose, to continue its bid of like expanding its own export markets in the Asia-Pacific region? Just finally, we've talked about feta, crumbly goats, sheep cheese, but if you had to, what else would you call Prosecco? Well, see, this is the tricky thing. You can't call it Australian sparkling anymore because, of course, that was the sort of champagne and that obviously uses different grapes. I know the Prosecco growers are deeply resistant to using the Glera name. They just think it's ugly and unrecognisable. Yeah, it's not great. Um, So do you call it Australian Prosecco? I mean, I'd buy it. I'm not sure if others would, but um, perhaps that is the compromise that the EU needs to accept. Jane Norman is the ABC's National Regional Affairs Reporter at Parliament House. He's been called a maverick and a miracle worker. But it's been a stunning fall from grace for the man once dubbed Australia's best neurosurgeon. The days of Charlie Teo operating in this country are almost certainly over. High-profile surgeon Dr Charlie Teo, home alone, as the verdict against him arrived by email. He has imposed fresh restrictions on Professor Teo, banning him from operating on brain tumours without written support from an approved neurosurgeon. Earlier this year, the Healthcare Complaints Commission heard from the families of two women who died after surgeries performed by Charlie Teo. They say they weren't properly warned of the risks. 
The controversial surgeon has now been found guilty of unsatisfactory professional conduct. Tio says he's been persecuted for pushing the boundaries. What I've seen in the last two years since I haven't been able to operate and since they've uh, successfully stopped me from operating is good colleagues, talented surgeons, not offering surgery because they've seen what's happened to me. But to many of his colleagues and critics, he's dangerous. I would describe him as a charming narcissist. Kate McClymont is the chief investigative reporter with the Sydney Morning Herald. She began reporting on Charlie Teo in 2019. It was interesting talking to people who've consulted with him. You know, they talked about, um, you know, sitting with his feet up on the desk, eating, you know, yellow lolly snakes, telling them that you don't need to worry about that because I am the best. I am the best. In my hands, like when people would say, look, I'm worried about my mother or my sister or my brother having this operation, he would dismiss their concerns and say, but that's other people. You know, the reason you've come to me is that I'm Charlie Teo. And that's not to say that Teo isn't a fine surgeon. What exactly are the Healthcare Complaints Commission's findings against him? Teo has been found guilty of unsatisfactory professional conduct. And that basically means that um, he gets a reprimand and has conditions placed on his practising certificate. But the key findings against him were basically his lack of judgement, lack of empathy and lack of explaining to his patients the risks of their operation. And I know that so many people out there say, oh, you know, terrible, you know, the terrible medical system is depriving Australians of, you know, one of the best neurosurgeons. I think that's not the point. The point is, is that if you have an inoperable tumour and you go to see Charlie Teo, he must say to you, look, The risks of doing this operation far outweigh any benefit. But if you're happy to go ahead, you know, I will do it. But they're saying that is not what happens. He downplays risks. He also was found to, you know, basically catastrophize by telling vulnerable and desperate people, you will die by the end of the week unless you have surgery tomorrow. And added to that is the inappropriate financial charges of saying, and I won't operate unless $35,000 is in my bank by tonight before I do the surgery. Charlie Teo had already been banned from performing surgery after a New South Wales Medical Council ruling in 2021. Uh, And then this Healthcare Complaints Commission eight-day disciplinary hearing took place. So what is the significance of this latest finding against him? Well, in fact, he wasn't actually banned, but the conditions that were placed on him in 2021 by the New South Wales Medical Council was effectively a ban. But basically they said, you can't do these kind of recurrent malignant intracranial tumours and brainstem tumour operations unless you get a neurosurgeon of 
20 years standing to give written approval for you to go ahead and do this operation. Now, not only were there not a lot of volunteers to do this, but those that did say that they would do it, their own medical insurance companies wouldn't allow them to do these operations. So it was an effective banning. And on top of that, the Prince of Wales Private Hospital, which is part of a much larger private hospital group, they actually cancelled his ability to conduct operations in their group of hospitals. So his career in Australia is effectively over. When you first began writing about Dr Charlie Teo, his career was certainly not over. He was flying really high and he was adored by his fans, of which there were quite a few. What sort of response did you get when you first raised questions about his behaviour? Back in 2019 when we, as you said, we first raised this, I had 450 emails, 450. I have never had that kind of response to any story that I have ever done. Now, there there were some saying that I was evil and, you know, why was I doing this to such a hero? But the interesting thing was I had emails from intensive care specialists, neurologists, neurosurgeons, nurses, from every single state in Australia and as far afield as Alaska, Germany, London, just saying to me, thank you, thank you, thank you. And it it was like this has been a dark secret in the medical profession where for so many years his colleagues have been concerned about what happens to his patients. We hear about the wonderful successes, but we don't hear of the huge number of patients languishing in interstate or country hospitals because if you don't have medical insurance, you're going to run out of money very quickly. So it has been left to the public hospital system to pick up the pieces for these emotionally and financially scarred families whose loved ones are often left in comatose or vegetative states. You said you received messages from colleagues of Charlie Teo's in surgery who were grateful that you were looking into this story. Charlie Teo himself has said many times that his critics are fuelled by professional jealousy. What do you say to that argument? Look, I have spoken to so many. Not one has expressed any jealousy. In fact, they have praised Charlie Teo for his excellent surgical skills. But what they worry about is his decisions to operate on the truly, truly inoperable. That sort of wish to play God, you know, the thing about being a good surgeon is that it's just as critical to know when not to operate as it is when to know to operate. And I think Charlie Teo doesn't seem to know that that, that difference. And to charge people for futile operations is also heartbreaking. So 
do you think we will see him in an operating theatre either in Australia or overseas again? I think we'll probably see him in an operating theatre overseas, but I don't know whether these current findings of the Professional Standards Committee will have any effect on his ability to operate overseas. In a podcast, Tio himself said that um, in Spain he was now restricted to being an assistant to not actually being able to do the operations himself. Now, I don't know whether that is still ongoing or whether he's challenging those things, but he has said that um, he's planning to operate overseas. So I just don't know which hospitals will give him accreditation and also whether he'll be able to get uh, medical insurance for those operations that he's doing overseas. I'm just not sure. Kate McClymont is the Chief Investigative Reporter with the Sydney Morning Herald. And that's the episode for this week. Subscribe by searching for This Week Podcast. It's produced by Bridget Fitzgerald, Rachel Hayter, Anna John and me, Sarah Dingle. I'll be with you for the next few weeks. Catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.